Welcome to the Western Bell podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled, We'll Never Be Prepared for Life. We might as well start living it. The talk was given by Rick Lewis on August 6, 2022, via Zoom. Rick is a national speaker and author who has coached and inspired individuals in personal and professional growth for 25 years. A professional misbehavior at heart, he is the author of numerous books, including Seven Rules You Were Born to Break, The Perfection of Nothing, and You Have the Right to Remain Silent. He begins the talk by commenting on his bio and describing his current focus in spiritual work, and then speaks about the process he has gone through in buying a home in Arizona just before the pandemic and in recently moving to Vancouver in British Columbia, Canada. Rick gives examples of what can show up when we say yes to things we are not prepared for and don't follow the usual script. If you would like to participate in the writing exercise that people engaged in during the talk, just pause the podcast and reflect on and write answers to the questions Rick poses. And if there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. Rick Lewis. What is really of interest to me these days in life is watching my desire to control my life. Circumstances, other people, where I am, what I'm doing. And that has been a lifelong (laughs) habit, a lifelong habit to control things. And so a bio is a really interesting little example of well, maybe I want to try and control people's perception of me before we even begin. So it's off on the foot that I want it to be on. And even doing that, it's just interesting to watch that desire that people have a favorable impression or it goes in a certain direction. So I'm very interested in undermining my ability to control circumstances as much as I always have. And so I have this presentation that I do for a living, corporate presentations, and the presentation begins by posing as a waiter. I pose as a server. I pretend to be one of the serving staff at the hotel. And I go around and I'm pouring water and I'm getting more and more odd and eccentric as the meal progresses. And so by the end of the meal, everyone either wants to take me home and give me a safe place to stay where I won't hurt myself or have me fired or is whispering between each other concerned about what's going on with this guy. And so how that unfolds in the presentation is I eventually reveal that I'm their keynote speaker. I go up on stage and I do this whole act and act is a very good word for it because I'm a juggler and acrobat and comedian. And I have this whole shtick that I do where after I've pulled this ruse on them, 
I give him this very entertaining show. So the last two years with COVID, I've hardly worked at all because the event industry was just entirely decimated. So this last couple of years, being outside of my act, literally not having the opportunity to run my act, the Rick show, being in front of the room and making people laugh and doing the things that I know are going to get a laugh or make people impressed. That two-year period of not doing these gigs, which I've been doing for 25 years, several times a month, the whole time, that two-year period was a real unraveling for me. And just being home with my family, having a continuity of relationship with my family members was startling. The kind of constant interruption of place and space and having to be somewhere else that's different and exciting. I added it up. I went back and I looked and I realized I hadn't been in one place for more than three weeks in about 40 years, constantly moving and traveling. And so to be just home in one place, I started having these experiences. I just start weeping and going, what is going on? I started discovering all this armor that I've been carrying. And that armor for me has been a way of pushing away relationship. So just getting to be with my kid and my wife and friends in town and being in one place, it was very emotional, very deep. It was like doing body work. And the body work was the opposite of what you usually think of in terms of body work, where something works on the body. And there was nothing working on me. I wasn't moving. I wasn't going anywhere. I wasn't having any big experiences. I was just in one place, just experiencing this continuity of place and relationship. And I just started to really see how much I had constructed my life in such a way to run from thing to thing. Very exciting. On the surface, it looks very road warrior, making money on the road, entertaining crowds looks good on paper. And there are tremendous upsides to doing this work. It's very enjoyable. I think it really gives something to people, but it's been costing me. And so the last two years of not doing this at all, I feel like I keep falling through another layer of flooring. Like there's this kind of hype that I've been standing on in my nervous system. And every once in a while, I drop down another notch fall down another notch. And so my whole type A achievement-oriented context has been this, okay, break through to the next level, go to the next thing, push the envelope. And so this is an opposite kind of movement, dropping down a level. Oh, that's what that feels like to actually let my kid be a kid, be a 12-year-old, instead of have to have everything arranged perfectly in the house and not have any messes created. So I'm 
on this journey as of the last two years, so starting when I was, well, 58, now I'm 61, and I don't even know what's going on. I don't know what this is. This is an unknown trajectory for me. And now I'm out of money because we bought a house right before COVID hit. My dream home, beautiful home in Arizona. And I went to the bank. I said, hey, can we buy this house? And they looked at my bank statements based on what I'd been making as a speaker. I went, yeah, no problem. Here you go. Here are the keys. And we weren't in that house for more than two weeks. The last piece of furniture hadn't hit the floor and COVID hit. Mm-hmm. And within a week, a year's worth of speaking work was canceled, wiped off the map. And I knew, I said to my wife, when we went into this house, I had this feeling that the house represents a level of goodness and abundance. The whole home and the place it is just brought me joy, just a tremendous amount of joy. And rather than go for a home that was very practical and within our price range, it was this leap. And I knew it was going to require some kind of upscale when we bought the home. And my feeling was the upscale was going to be me working harder, making more money, probably being on the road more. I literally thought, okay, that's what's coming. And then what happened was the absolute opposite, the complete opposite of that. No, you just get to stay home and be with your family and sit on the porch and look at the view and see what you do with that. So I have a very different past that I didn't expect. So the reason I'm giving this talk is because we had decided to move. I just moved from Arizona to Vancouver, BC. And my thought was, there's no way, there's absolutely no way I can be prepared for giving a talk anytime in the next six months because the number of details there are to handle, moving all my stuff and moving to a completely different country and everything involved with that just has had me feeling, oh my God, this is impossible. And so when I saw that reaction in me to like run from showing up for something like that, I went, oh, gosh, that is the perfect thing to say yes to right now because it's in alignment with what I feel is being asked. And I don't know where that's going. I don't know where that leads. But the feeling, the instinct or the impulse is that there's something that can show up when preparation is not possible. Either presence or panic has to take its place. And that's an interesting moment. That's an interesting position to be in when you're not prepared. And then you get to go, okay, are you going to be able to just be present and be you and be authentic and be in relationship and let that fill whatever space is there? Or the panic version is some form of reactivity. Am I going to try and really take control and force things to go in a way that I'm comfortable with or that's known to me? So that's why I said yes to the talk. And my assumption was correct that I would not be prepared. And so I'm very interested for myself. What can show up if I'm not prepared? 
to give a talk. I had one gig a few months ago at this waiter routine that I was describing. And I did the whole waiter routine. And that's supposed to lead into my giving this keynote, this organizational development keynote saying, oh, this is what that means. And this is what you just experienced. And here's some comedy to go with it, this big show. And I hadn't done the waiter routine in a long, long time. People were so impacted. And maybe it's also because of COVID. People were so impacted by this odd service. People were very emotional about it. So when I completed the waiter routine, there was a gap of like 20 minutes before my show. And I had people coming up to me and telling me what their experience was. And this one man, this corporate executive, came up to me. He opened the conversation by saying, I've never told anybody this, but I was severely abused as a child. And just your overfilling of water glasses and what you did created so much fear in me. I was thrown back to these memories. I've been blocking this out of my mind and my attention. And he's talking about being severely abused as a child. You know, often if people get triggered into something like that based on something you've done, then that can be a, a uncomfortable situation because they can make you to blame for it. But he wasn't doing that at all. He was sharing with me what it was like to be abused as a kid and how he's put his life together at this point to be able to work around these fears. And he was telling me that this waiter routine had triggered this opening for him. And he actually thanked me for opening this up. So it came time for the keynote. And I went up on stage and I was supposed to start all this shtick. And I was looking at these 150 managers of call centers responsible for all of the representatives who take complaints and customer service calls. And I stood on stage and I just said, we have to talk. And I got the production manager to bring out a mic and I had him pass it around on the floor. I said, anybody have anything to say about your experience with this waiter routine? And so instead of doing any kind of show or any kind of act, we just had a conversation about what this brought up for people. And it was fascinating. It was super uncomfortable for me because I wasn't doing the Rick show. I wasn't in front of the room, making everybody laugh and creating this experience. It was completely a collaborative experience. So people would talk, we would have a conversation and that was the whole thing. And it was completely not what I was contracted to do. It was all spelled out what I was going to do, this show, this keynote. And I was prepared for the client to say, hey, we're not paying you. And I was willing to not get paid for that gig because it felt like this is what needs to happen. So we had this conversation and then it ended. And as it turned out, people, people got a lot out of the presentation. The client was surprised. And they felt, yeah, that isn't exactly what we asked for, but it worked. And so we're going to pay you. 
But it was a very different experience for me. It wasn't this feeling of putting on a show and having people love it and come up after saying, oh, I had so much fun. That was so great. It was like this very different experience. And so it was very odd for me. That interests me right now, moving in directions that I'm just not familiar with, not comfortable with, just to see what can show up, what can happen if I'm not following the script, the usual script. Another thing that I recently said yes to that I wasn't prepared for, this was also right after I found out we were moving. I have been writing on a website called Medium. It's a blogging site. So I started writing on this site and I was really, really nervous to put my writing out into public this way. And the last thing I expected was to have substantive dialogue with other human beings in the form of long-form social media. So you write an article and then people can comment on your article and you can go back and forth. Someone can even leave private notes on what you've written. So if you're willing to write about things that are important to you and you care about, there's a lot of people out there who then read and those who are interested in that topic can wind up conversing with you and commenting. And I have met some of the most amazing people through writing on Medium. Thoughtful, intelligent people who are really looking for substance in their lives. And it's the last thing I expected. I really expected to be another place I can perform. I can write articles and have them do well. But the total perk of writing on this has been relationships that I've started to form with people, other writers. There are some incredible writers. And there's a lot of terrible writing on there as well. You have to wade through it. There's a lot of cookie cutter schlock that shows up. But just by getting in there and raising your voice and putting out what you're interested in, I've met all these interesting people. One person that I met was this guy named Carlos. And Carlos is about my age, late 50s. He's from Cuba. He's a yoga teacher and a community college professor. And he wrote an article that was about his refusal to traffic in hope. That's a different kind of idea than you see in the mainstream. And the thing about writing, other people's writing or your own, I don't know why it is or how this is, but it's pretty transparent. You get a quick sense of who's behind anything that you're writing. And when someone makes a statement like, I refuse to traffic in hope, that got my attention really quick. So I started reading his articles and he just has this wonderful context. He reads a lot of Chogyam Trungpa and he's a very eclectic number of sources that he's been studying with, but he's a longstanding meditation practice. And as part of his own practice, which is oriented toward 
keeping track of his suffering as an important component of wellness. This is his way of talking about it. It's like, if you want to be well, you better stay close to your suffering. So I'm reading his articles and then I like, I'm going to ask this guy if he wants to be friends. Like, I want to be friends with this guy, known from anywhere. So I put a private note in one of his articles and he reads a couple of mine and he responded very favorably. And so we got on a phone call and we started talking. And so in our first conversation, he invited me to join a mindfulness meditation workshop that he was giving. But the workshop has two parts, Zoom calls with general public. So he's got a group of 20 people on Zoom calls. And the other part is him giving the same presentation to inmates at the Homestead Women's Prison in Florida. So he's teaching this public group and he's teaching these women inmates. And then what happens after every class is you're paired up with one of the inmates and you exchange letters with them. I cannot tell you how they had more inmates than public presenters. So we asked a couple people if they would have two pen pals. So I took on two. So I was getting letters from two of these women. Talk about not fucking being prepared and thriving. Like if you've ever been to the inner city or where people are really up against their suffering and really struggling, it's like this in India. For those of us who've been to India, there is a brightness. There's a kind of radiance. There is an aliveness in people who are in circumstances that they cannot control, that they can't be prepared for. And the letters from these women and what they're up against in prison, literally everything being taken away other than what fits in a two-by-two locker. So that's what you get in terms of possessions. You can have as much stuff as fits in a two-by-two locker. That's it. You're up at 4 or 5 a.m. working 12-hour days for like five cents an hour or something because prison labor is a real thing. And if you don't know anything about the prison system and how it actually works, it's all corporate. So this is Florida. They have a two-strikes law. Two strikes means if you break the law twice in a particular kind of way, you can go to prison for it. So one of my correspondent partners was imprisoned. She has three children. She had three children that were ages six months, one and two. She was put in prison for robbing a convenience store with an unloaded BB gun for life. Life imprisonment. Robbing a convenience store with an unloaded BB gun. This woman has now been in prison for 15 or 20 years. She doesn't see her kids. She knows that once... Ah, (laughs) This just turned me upside down. 
I had these two inmates and they're telling me about their life circumstances and what they're up against. She's saying, I have to make sure I don't go down this hallway at this time or I'll get killed. And I'm writing, I have to move. I'm really stressed out because all my possessions are scattered everywhere. (laughs) You know, just like it was incredible to have this perspective in my face. At the same time, I was experiencing what for me was stressful circumstances. And yet these women wanted to hear about my life. I wrote an extended letter about being out on a boat. I went to Goldwater Lake on my birthday in a kayak and sat and meditated in a rowboat on the lake, absolutely pristine, not a ripple on the surface of the water. An eagle was flying overhead, all the fish and the bugs. And so I wrote an extended description, several pages of all the details of what it was like to be out in nature, on this boat, on the water. And I sent it to the inmates. And I said, I hope this isn't difficult or offensive to do this, but I'm curious, is this helpful? Is this something you would like to hear? And both of them wrote back and said, oh my God, yes, 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 please. I want to hear about this experience. And one of them said, I love seeing the world through your eyes. And so this is another example This man that I met said, do you want to join this class? I didn't know what was going to come of that. And I did not have the time to do it with moving. But I said, yes. And what I wound up getting back from these prisoners, this woman that I was writing, wrote in a letter, because I did write, I'm moving and it's kind of hard. And I realized there was zero judgment coming from these women. They had no judgment about my life, my circumstances, the access to material things I have. They wanted to hear about my life. And so here I am with this woman who's in prison writing me back and saying, I'm thinking of you. I'm with you. You've got this. God never gives you more than you can handle. Freaking blew me away, man. I'd like to invite everyone to just work with a question. And I'm going to pose the question in a second. And what could be useful is if you have something to write with, you could write down your thoughts in relationship to this question. And it'll work best if once I ask the question, you're able to write without editing, and just let whatever is right there, first thought, just let yourself write down what comes to mind in relationship to this question. All right, so here's the question. Ask yourself this question. You're posing this question to yourself, and then you're just going to write whatever comes to mind. What am I ignoring? 
Okay. Now, looking at your list, just look at the list for a moment. Just look at what you wrote down and circle the item that creates the most energy in you when you see it. That energy could be dread. It could be joy. It could be fear. Whatever creates the most energy in you, circle that one. And now I'm going to ask you another question. And you can just write again, write down the first thing that comes to mind. So the question you're going to ask yourself is, what am I feeling about what I've been ignoring? And a good place to start if you just feel confused in relationship to that question is to pick from mad, sad, glad, or scared. Just keep it simple. Can everybody unmute all at once? Can everyone unmute? I'm curious what that will sound like and how it will be in conversation that way. So did anyone get surprised about something you wrote down that you're ignoring? Well, I thought something would come up. I was anxious because I didn't have a proper answer. So I feel fearful about the unknown. If you didn't have to have a proper answer, what would have come out on the page? Because that's part of the exercise is to just let it be weird, improper, make no sense. In fact, those are the best things. If I'm ignoring something, it's out of sight. So it seemed like an oxymoron question. When you don't know that you don't know, what finally came up was that I live in an apartment house and there's a collection of ladies that sometime gathering in front of the apartment house in a little sitting area. And I walk past them today, ignoring them. I've been away a few days and my car was not near them. But I was actively ignoring it. This is not the first time I've done it. If my car happens to be parked by them, it's a little harder to ignore them, but I manage it. And what did I feel about it? I was wondering if I should be a little bit more sociable. But anyway, the thing was, is if I'm ignoring it, it's out of sight. There's something going on. I'm blind to it. How do you not be blind to what you're blind to? That was the challenge of this question. Yeah, so I guess the, another form of the question would be, what am I avoiding? What have I been avoiding? What am I pushing out of my attention? What am I ignoring? Mostly heartbreak. I refuse to feel the acknowledgement of the depth of my own suffering and the extent to which others suffer. What that looks like for me is anger. Anger because I will focus on the circumstances that create the suffering. Mm -hmm. The people around me who create through their own being who they are, my suffering, and for whom I create suffering. And it's, uh, 
much easier to be mad about the suffering, about the circumstances, the behaviors, the games, unconscious or not, that occur than it is to talk about it so I don't have to act it out. And what I'm finding is that the only way through it, the suffering, is to actually have a conversation. And I don't want to have those conversations. They are really scary to me. And yet, it's the only way through. The only way through is through. That means that I sit across from someone, talk to them, and let them know about my own hurt, my own pain, and get them in their listening to acknowledge that and me acknowledge their pain and suffering as well. And I can do that sometimes, and sometimes I will run like hell. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I just want to say that the only way that I can get through life is by recognizing my own inadequacies. Life is really hard. It's through my really depending on God that I get through life. It's a really curious thing to me that with this basic truth that life is hard, life is painful, that did you all hear the music in the background? No. Mm-hmm. It's my child coming downstairs playing his heavy metal music. Heavy metal is the favorite genre of my child currently. That's another thing that I've been avoiding. (laughs) (laughs) Yesterday, we're walking in the woods. We've moved to Vancouver, BC, and we live a half block from a semi-temperate rainforest, which is just extraordinary, just so beautiful. And we were walking in the woods and talking about wanting to go to a concert. Does anyone know the band Corn? Heavy metal band. And my kid wants to go see a corn concert. This is sort of like a heavy metal scene, mosh pits and the whole thing, expecting and rightly so to get a rise out of his dad to watch my sphincter tighten. It's part of the joy of being a teenager is to see what you can push in your parents. So I'm standing there just going, okay, I'll take you to a corn concert. That's how I responded. So now we're in negotiations for how and when we're going to go to a heavy metal concert. Probably the last place on earth I'd like to be, but who knows what I might discover there. So what is the mechanism by which we insist on the habit of deepening our suffering by avoiding it? And that's the purpose of the question is to start to go, what am I avoiding? What am I ignoring? And of course, sometimes it's a smart thing to avoid or ignore some things. But I wouldn't say that that impulse is applied intelligently in us all the time. It's a blanket avoidance of anything that makes us uncomfortable, uneasy, that hurts or scary. So what does it look like to start to just admit what we're avoiding or what we're ignoring? And is there anything on your list 
that you could consider embracing instead of turning away from it? For me, what I'm ignoring is stopping and being. Exactly what you described happened to you in the last two years. When I read some poems or people who are sitting next to a tree and they look in the tree and then they look in the clouds and they sit there for hours and then these feelings come up. I never make time for that. It's like, okay, one minute and then keep going. You have more useful things to do. Right. It's like so ingrained in me. When all the work is done, then you can sit down and read your book, do something what you can enjoy. And there's always something to do. So there's no end on my list, on my to-do list. It's a big thing, ignoring or I avoid to feel deep sadness because I'm avoiding this. I need to feel useful. Mm -hmm. And when I heard you like paraphrasing, sitting around for two years, oh my God, yeah. So for me, it's like, do I have a right to exist without doing, without producing? Then another distinction came up for me because sometimes I make a choice to avoid something because I know it's not healthy or it's not good impression food for me. Thank you. Yeah, it's really interesting. When you ask the question, how much being space does a human being really need? How much being space should a human being have? And in relationship to our modern day lives and how busy we are, we think if I take 20 minutes to just sit and do nothing, I'm doing really well. I read this article in The Guardian about the longest serving sentence in solitary confinement of a prisoner ever. The guy is Albert Woodfox. He was part of the Black Panther movement, just passed away. He was in solitary confinement for 44 years. Solitary, a six by nine cell, no relationship, contact. And he got out in 2016. So I guess he was out for four or five years and he just died. And his comment in this article with the interviewer of The Guardian was how much he misses having the amount of time he had just to be with himself and his thoughts. You know, of course, he was thrilled to be out and get to actually meet his grandkids and great-grandkids. He was wrongfully imprisoned. He got out. They found out after 44 years that he was framed. He He and two other of the movement who were in prison, a prison guard got killed. And so they framed them because they were an easy set of suspects. And he was in solitary confinement for 44 years for a crime he did not commit. And he was in uh, Angola, in Louisiana. He was in Angola prison, which is one of the hardest, roughest prisons in the whole country. Yeah. But part of the reason I mention that and this whole prison theme is because what I stumbled across in my correspondence with these inmates is you can absolutely 
be in prison and not be behind bars. And you can be behind bars and be free in spirit. Because these women were. They had something. There was one woman who wrote to another member of our group, and she wrote about her refusal to let anyone take away her dignity and her gratefulness for another day. Every day she'd wake up and she had a song. Ah, wish I could remember the name of it. Anyway, so just the demonstration of the spirit of these individuals, even though they had nothing. And so part of the reason for the question is, I believe, and I've seen for myself, we become imprisoned by our stories. We are imprisoned by the narratives that we hold on to. I can't do this. I can't do that. I'm not that type of person. This kind of situation scares me too much to engage. I can't talk to that person. I'm not good at fill in the blank. There are all these different ways that we repeat a story that actually walls us off from being able to experience life, from being able to engage with a certain type of person or in a certain kind of circumstance. And so when we ask the question, what am I avoiding? What have I been ignoring? If you let your body answer that question, the body is going to attempt to reclaim your being space in relationship to what your story has imprisoned you, walled you out of being able to relate to. So that's the context of that question. Because to me, spiritual life, a teacher always used to say, the point is to be able to do what's wanted and needed. And most of us can feel the body is communicating what is wanted and needed. But the stories we tell ourselves and the habit body will steer you away from engaging with what is wanted and needed to the extent that you have created a prison for yourself in relationship to the kind of action or behavior you can engage. So the only way you can respond to what's wanted and needed is if you are free to do so. And that is the layer of spiritual practice that I believe is less addressed than all the ideas and intellectual dharma around what it means, what spirituality is about. So many times my teacher would be more concerned about a person's ability to actually close a door softly be present enough to close a door without slamming it, then whether they understand, can spout the principles of Advaita Vedanta. In your body, in your actual life, what is it that you are prohibited from engaging? What story stops you from being fluid and able to say yes to whatever relationship, whatever circumstance, whatever opportunity comes in your direction. That is useful to ask yourself that question and then develop, practice the capacity 
of stretching yourself into that territory, wherever it is that you really don't want to go or don't want to engage. And for me, lately, it's been mostly a more passive exploration because it's more easy for me to go out and create sound and fury signifying nothing to quote William Shakespeare. (laughs) But for someone else, it might be the opposite. It might be you actually could use leaving your house or your room. I would like to say something about avoiding what's happening to me in my life. I'm 82 years old, so I'm dealing with the changes that keep constantly coming from aging. And it seems like you get worse from things that you do. And I'm less able to be clear about what I'm doing, how to speak something or how to be. You know, I was fearful about even trying to speak this. I have the feeling and I hardly know the words to express Mm. what it is, the fear that I have about the unknown happening to me because this is not me. You know, I'm different from that. I could do this or that or the other thing. Mm. And when the memory starts to go and the ability to organize or the life energy to do, I'm aware of this and I do feel it. But I think there's another step that I need to take into the unknown in spite of the fear. Mm. I'm preparing myself for my death and I am in pretty good health now and it could be years from now or (laughs) what happens with me and the people around me could be tomorrow. (laughs) So that's not so sure how that's going to be. There's a lot more in there and I don't know how to say it, Rick, but but it's very important to open it up. You're saying it just fine. You're saying it beautifully. Seeing you there, I can I see your presence. I feel it. That speaks. And thank you. Thank you for speaking. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Ray. You're missing nothing, as far as I can tell. So there are more questions that go with that process. So I'll give you a few more questions and you could write them down. And then later on, if you want to play with these questions in succession and work with them on your own, you'll have a series that may interest you and may lead to a place of discovery for you. So I gave you the question of What am I ignoring? Now that you understand the intent of the question could be rephrased to what am I avoiding? And then what am I feeling about what I'm ignoring? And then the next question is, what am I really wanting? So in relationship to the thing that you've been avoiding or ignoring, to ask yourself, what am I really wanting? And it's important when you're working with that question 
not to frame your answer in terms of what you think is possible, what you think you could get, what you think other people will accept, what you have permission to want. All of that will attempt to be present as you answer that question. But your job is to go beyond permission, your idea of what's possible, your conditioned beliefs about what you can and can't do. And just from your heart, what are you really wanting? No limits to it. Just let yourself speak from the heart what you're really wanting, even if that seems impossible or unlikely or that somebody would try and stop you. What am I really wanting? And then two more questions you can add after you've worked with those three. Who do I need to help? So you've identified for yourself what you've been avoiding, how you feel about what you've been avoiding. Once you've identified what you're really wanting, ask yourself if there's someone you need to help. Is there somebody that you can help that would facilitate what you're wanting? And then the last question is, what do I need to ask for? And when you're working with those questions and answering them, the more you can just let yourself, writing is very good, just unedited, just whatever comes out. Don't allow your your prison mind to keep you in the same box. Let yourself write down whatever words or phrases or ideas pop into your mind and just record them. It takes some courage to do that because sometimes very, very unexpected things can come out and things that can be confrontive. Could you say again, the second part of question four, the question is, who do I need to help? Who would facilitate what I am wanting? Is that what you said? Once you've identified what you're really wanting, then just to ask yourself the question, now that I know what I really want, is there somebody I could help or should help that comes to mind in relationship to what I'm wanting. There might not be. I think this is a good place to close the space. Thank you so much, everybody, for coming and your presence and letting me just be present with you. And uh, tomorrow, we all get to have another day that we are not prepared for. Hooray. (laughs) 